From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. It's been a whirlwind first month for freshman Congressman Gabe Amo, with Republicans this week voting to start an impeachment inquiry against his former boss, President Biden, while back home, a major bridge in the heart of his district suddenly shut down. All this while the 36-year-old Democrat is still unpacking boxes in his new office. Our guest this week on Newsmakers, Congressman Gabe Amo. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White, joined by 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi, Congressman Gabe Amo. Welcome to the show. You're first as a congressman and yes. not a candidate. Completely. Feels different, doesn't it? Feels it feels different, but I'm glad to be on with you regardless. <laughs> you got the pin, too. I do green have the pin. this year. So yeah. that I guess you are official. You have the pin. <laughs> all right, look, we, we do have to start with yes. the uh, fiasco on the Washington Bridge. As all our viewers know, uh, the westbound side was shut down on Monday over concerns that it would collapse. As we tape this, two bypass lanes were just open this morning. Before we get to the policy questions, Channel 12 Studios are in East Providence. You told us before the show you you came directly from TS Green, yeah. TF Green, excuse me. What was your what was the drive like? Well, I was pleasantly surprised that there wasn't a, a, a backup coming west, and I'm glad that there's relief uh, for Rhode Islanders. Frankly, you know, I, I want to express my sympathies to the Rhode Islanders, the small businesses, uh, all of those impacted uh, by you know something not of their creation at what is a really busy time uh, for people to go to holiday parties, to do their holiday shopping. And, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that working with DOT, uh, working with the rest of the delegation on any support that we can get from the federal government, that we can uh, make sure that Rhode Islanders don't bear the brunt of this really unfortunate circumstance. Yeah, and it it has also sparked real concern that uh, more of Rhode Island uh, bridges are in rougher shape than we think. We know that there are 169 uh, bridges that are structurally deficient right now. Washington Bridge was one of them. But... It's clear that uh, highway officials in Rhode Island didn't know how bad this bridge was. Does Rhode Island need more federal help, more federal money um, to take care of what is clearly an epidemic here? Yeah, what is clear to me is that we need a robust uh, top to bottom assessment of where we are uh, to have a full shape. We've been talking about bridges and structural uh, deficiencies for years. When I worked in the governor's office for Governor Raimondo, we spent a lot of time talking about that yielding roadwork. So I think it's really important, especially with the infusion of funds from the bipartisan infrastructure law passed by a Democratic Congress led uh, by folks here in this state with Senator Reid and Senator Whitehouse, that we tap into every dollar that's possible. But we need a full scope of the situation uh, and, and analysis to make sure that we're moving as fast as possible. Well, and to uh, to your point, you served in the Raimondo administration while Roadworks was being debated. I have to ask, that was seven years ago. Is it right. frustrating to you, now you're obviously wearing quite a different hat as a member of Congress, but that seven years after that big legislative fight you all had to get Roadworks passed, one of the biggest, most important bridges is still getting shut down abruptly like this. Yeah, I, I think, look, we've funded significant road and bridge projects in this state. Uh, we have more to do, clearly. Uh, and I am glad that an inspection found this and that we did not have a disaster 
at the lengths that we saw in Los Angeles or in Philadelphia. But this is disheartening because people expect government to work, to function. So my role is to spend time with local officials today. In fact, I, I will spend some time hopefully with Mayor De Silva, with uh, Secretary uh, Tanner, uh, with SBA leader Mark Hayward, and get a sense of how people are impacted. But then we've got to do the real work of navigating the federal government, navigating state DOT, federal highway to make sure that we have what we need so that we don't have this again. You know, when you're speaking of federal highway, uh, Congressman Jake Auchincloss mm -hmm. from the 4th Congressional District of Massachusetts had the opportunity to question federal highway officials during a hearing this week. Let's just take a brief listen to that. You think there are things that the state could be doing to reduce the timeline for repair? I mean, we're looking at in Pennsylvania, Governor Shapiro got it up and open in what, a week? Uh, two weeks for Pennsylvania, eight days for California. I think every... Those are the kind of timelines we're looking for, I think. Yeah. I, thank you, Representative. I understand that for, for, for Rhode Islanders and, and everyone uh, on the East Coast, it's a critical artery. Uh, we will do everything we can to get that bridge open as quickly as possible. Uh, Congressman, earlier in that questioning, Congressman Auchincloss talked a lot about how uh, the bridge closure is affecting his constituents yeah. that are, you know, working their way into Rhode Island trying to get into or through Providence. Have you been hearing from constituents about this? Yes, I most certainly have. Uh, you know, we are just getting up and running. I have offices open in Washington and Pawtucket. And I I've heard uh, from many folks. I'm getting text messages every morning. Uh, folks are frustrated, and reasonably so. And, uh, you know, I spoke to Congressman uh, Alconclaus before that hearing. He told me he was going to raise uh, this question, uh, you know, in solidarity with me and Congressman Magaziner, his colleagues in the House, and also Bill Ke Keating, who's also mm -hmm. affected uh, by this as well. So. We're all in this together. Uh, we're hearing from folks, and I, that's why I encourage Rhode Islanders, if you can, spend money at the affected businesses uh, in the areas uh, on the east side, in East Providence, uh, and up and down, we should be shopping small, so that this holiday season isn't too poorly uh, dampened by this uh, unfortunate circumstance. All right, let's turn to the debates down at Capitol Hill in your mm -hmm. new job. And uh, the biggest one right now is whether the White House can clinch a deal with Senate Republicans mm -hmm. over uh, immigration policy changes in exchange for Ukraine funding, among other things. Um, first, I just want to zoom out a little bit. We're already hearing an outcry from some progressives and immigration advocates who don't want this linked at all, don't think this conversation should be happening, and, and sound like they don't really like any of the ideas they're hearing. Are you open to a deal like what's being discussed, granting that you don't have any details yet? Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? No details. But what is clear is that the president has put forward uh, in a supplemental proposal the need to fund more Border Patrol agents to uh, help fortify our asylum process, real things that are consistent with our values. I don't want to depart from the values that we have for a, a respect for people who may be fleeing unfortunate circumstances. But again, we have a, a imperative to take care of our issues along the border and uh, in our cities and many of our communities. I got to tell you, it sounds like you're open to it. When you answer it that, Ted's question that way, it sounds like you're open to a, a bill that would tie Ukraine funding to uh, increased border security. Well, I, look, I think a lot of our priorities are inherently tied because they're all urgent. We have to act. Ukraine, you know, you saw President Zelensky was in Washington uh, this past week. I saw the Ukrainian ambassador over the last week as well. They need urgent action. And we're 
essentially punting until January. At the same time, we need action at the border. Uh, as I said in this studio during a debate, I believe that it is untenable to proceed along the road that we're on now. And unfortunately, all these crises are happening in parallel. So I, whether they're tied together or not, we're compelled to act in this moment. Now, the negotiators, I read this morning, one of the either political or punch bowl said that they're not even telling reporters who try to press them for details anything because they think it'll hurt the negotiations. But one that's come through that's at least being discussed is reviving a temporary expulsion authority that both Trump and Biden used during the pandemic. Would you be open to bringing that back? Well, I think we have to assess what its impact would be because, you know, there's a, a perverse incentive there for folks to actually bypass a lawful entry if you make it incredibly hard for them to pursue what may be reasonable uh, reasonable uh, desires to come to this country or to escape whether it's you know gang violence whether it's it's oppression from uh, the regimes down there whatever it is so I, I don't want to unfairly force more people into decisions that are, you know, are unlawful uh, and would create an additional burden on our immigration system. But just one last question, then we'll, we'll move mm -hmm. on. Is the problem that your party fundamentally is just kind of uncomfortable with border security? That, you know, because it seems like most Democrats' heart is in let as many immigrants in as we can and we, you know, we want to let them be here, that every time it comes to restrictions and things like that, it just makes Democrats queasy? No, I think we have to appeal to values. Border security means that we domestically are secure and those who are coming have a secure pathway to coming. That there's nothing inconsistent there. And I, I do think we have a tough time talking about it. This is this is often a problem with, with, with Democrats, but we have a high ideal of, of opportunity being brought forth by a, an immigration system that functions. That's why we need comprehensive immigration reform, as we've talked about. And these piecemeal deals at the end of the year to rush through the process doesn't inspire, you know, hope for the system. But I, I, I am... You know, hoping that the negotiators on the Democratic side know that they have to get something passed in the Democratic, uh, amongst the Democratic caucus in the House. And so I, I have faith, but we have to make sure that we are aiming towards comprehensive solutions that we all can uh, agree upon. So from one conflict to another, I mm -hmm. uh, want to talk about Israel, Gaza. And so our viewers know you serve on the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, which you're on a, a Middle East subcommittee. All right, look, President Joe Biden bypassed Congress and approved the direct sale of tank shells to Israel. The State Department did so under what's called the Arms Export Control Act that skipped normal congressional approval. Mm -hmm. That has angered a lot of lawmakers, including in your party. Are you okay with it? Well, I would prefer that wasn't the case. Uh, and this is what happens when we have delay in Congress. Uh, the, look, there's a need to act in this situation to support our ally Israel. But I, as, especially as a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, I, I am hopeful that we use the processes that exist uh, to provide congressional uh, uh, levels of accountability for the administration. And so, uh, you know, it is not uh, my hope that we continue down that road for, for additional sales to Israel. You and all three members of the round delegation, all Democrats, of course, 
are under some pressure from the left to support a ceasefire in Gaza, which more people are calling for as they see the civilian casualties there. Where are you on a ceasefire right now? Yeah, I, I've been fairly consistent uh, on this. Right now, I, I don't know that it would be effective, right? If the goal here is to root out the terrorism of Hamas, and we don't necessarily have an honest broker on the other side in in, in Hamas, where, where, you know, with Israel still fighting to get hostages. Remember, that deal broke down because of a refusal to provide a list of women hostages who may be getting sexually abused. We've heard all sorts of terrible things that could be happening. So how is that a negotiation that is bound for success? Now, we do have a specific and important humanitarian imperative I think we have to work hard, and you've seen President Biden say this over the last few days, to make sure our ally knows that we cannot have vast losses of civilians, innocent people dying uh, because of a regime that actually doesn't care about them either. Hamas doesn't care about Palestinians. And so we have to do everything that we can uh, using our diplomatic weight, using the weight of the presidency to ensure that fewer innocent people die. And and it is heartbreaking. Would that include condition, uh, any conditions on military aid to Israel? I, look, it could. But what I what I would say is we have two missions, right? We, we will need to think about the day after in Gaza. We need to have that conversation now because if the military campaign that Israel wages is, goes far beyond the mandate they have from the global community, then they will lose all faith in being partners in the day after. And that's what we need out of them. So uh, for, for me, uh, I think we can have a strategic engagement uh, that Israel leads to make sure that we root out the terrorism of Hamas, but we also need to be prepared for the day after and bring the world community back together. And it, it, it's a terrible time, uh, but I, I, I do have hope and, and we have to work towards it. I want to continue this conversation mm -hmm. on the other side of the break, but before we go to break, uh, you're a new congressman. Yes. You're doing some basic get-out-of-the-gate things, and one of those things is trying to get your constituents to sign up for updates. Yes. I encourage all my constituents to go to amo.house.gov. Sign up for our newsletter. Join us on social media uh, across all of the, the channels, whether it's Threads, uh, <laughs> X, uh, Instagram, Facebook, at Rep. Gabe Amo. I want to communicate with people as often as possible. That's why I'm here today, and I hope people join in uh, by signing up for our newsletter. You have embraced calling it X. I'm, I'm... The artist formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's pretty good. We're going to take a break here on Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Congressman Gabe Amo. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White, alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is Congressman Gabe Amo. I want to shift gears a little bit, uh, yeah. Congressman. And, you know, you're having a, a rare experience most of us will never have. You're joining the Congress. Um, I'm just curious, what's the biggest surprise to you so far about what it's like to become a member of Congress? Look, I, well, I get surprises every day. Uh, but I think the biggest set of surprises is the amount of bipartisanship that exists, at least in terms of the relationships that you're able to build. Is that really true? I feel like you guys always shocked. say that. I, I swear. But. So my committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, is mm -hmm. generally seen as very bipartisan. My chairman, uh, Mike McCall, came up to me after my first floor speech. Uh, 
Joe who's a Republican? Who's a say. Republican? Uh, uh, the chairman of my subcommittee on Middle East, uh, North Africa, and Central Asia, Representative Joe Wilson, and I from South Carolina spent. 30 minutes in his office yesterday talking about uh, how to engage the work of foreign affairs, you know, even though you've got to pay attention to the issues back home. So I, I think that is, is one surprise. I would say, you know, another is the is more disappointing is, is just how, you know, especially with this congressional Republican uh, majority in the House, that, you know, sometimes it, everything isn't as thought out. There's a lot of... of symbolic bills that you have out there. I, you know, I'm ready to get to work uh, for Rhode Islanders on the big issues of the day. So I, I'm, I'm you know, a little surprised by how much they are into the partisan politics uh, of, you know, appealing, You're appealing to You've the extremists. Politics, well, you know, I, I thought firsthand it might be a little bit different. But yeah. I, that's what makes me even more resolved to focus on our constituents right here uh, in, in Rhode Island on as many issues as possible and making sure we get federal yeah. dollars back I've read uh, people suggest that there's like two Congresses. There's the one that makes, frankly, the evening news a lot, which is the fighting and the very mm-hmm. partisan one, and then a secret Congress, which like actually negotiates bills and like where bipartisanship happens, but just doesn't make as many headlines. Is that, do you see evidence of that, that there's like yeah. two tracks? Sometimes on the House floor, you'll see members of the other parties move back and forth talking about things. So I do think there is some truth to that, but it's also about the context uh, of the leadership that you know is presented. We've got a new Speaker of the House, and right now he hasn't shown yet that they are appealing to their members to try to get work done. Right, I, Congressman Chip Roy from Texas was on the floor, and he went on a big rant, and he said, uh, "You know, Republicans have nothing to show for what they've done for the American people." That's unfortunate, and we got to get to work. You had a you were sworn in by the new speaker, Mike Johnson. Um, we played some video of that throughout the show. What did you two talk about? Well, he met my parents, which you know is surreal. You know, mm. kid from Pawtucket saying, "Mom, Dad, here's the Speaker of the House of Representatives, <laughs> yeah. the third highest ranking member of government." Look, I did it when I worked for the president, but it's even when it's like the place you, you you're working in as an elected member. Uh, and we, you know, I made a little joke with him. I said, "I hope I get a line in your memoirs because I'm your first swearing in." <laughs> yeah, there it is. There's a video now. <laughs> there you go. All right, so. Uh, I want to talk about some disagreements you've had uh, with members of your own party, um, including right here uh, in New England. You voted yes on the $886 billion defense funding bill. Congressman Auchincloss voted no. He said the Pentagon can do 10% more with 10% less money, and those savings should go to the wars in Ukraine and Israel. Why is he wrong? Well, I don't necessarily think that Congressman Auchincloss is wrong, but my approach here is we did some important things in the NDA. We raised military pay. Uh, we're investing in energy conservation and uh, energy independence and resilience. Those are important things. Sometimes you vote on imperfect pieces of legislation. This was long negotiated by Democrats in the House uh, and in the Senate on multiple committees of jurisdiction. And so my sense here, especially because we know the impact of the defense budget on Rhode Island jobs, that I'm always going to err on the side of supporting uh, Rhode Islanders and Rhode Island priorities. And we just might be a little bit different, but I'm serving my district with that vote and I stand by it. 
I also just can't fathom anyone in the delegation ever voting against Senator Reid's uh, defense funding bill. But you got well, he's a good negotiator, oh, so okay. I know yes. he did well. Yes, it. exactly. Um, we're going to stick with controversial votes, and uh, you probably know where I'm going with this. You've quickly taken some votes related to anti-Semitism that got headlines. In both cases, you and Congressman Magazine are split, so let's talk about these. Yeah. The first time, you voted no on a measure from the Republicans that would, they said would strip federal funding from colleges that allow anti-Semitic events on campus. You were one of only two House members in this region who voted that way, along with Ayanna Presley. Why? Well, I, I well, you know, want to zoom out and say that we have to address the scourge of anti-Semitism aggressively, and we have to do it sometimes with resources. So my point there and my assessment is the vague language of this particular resolution and it, the symbolism that, that, that it put forward would not do what I think is important to funding efforts to combat anti-Semitism. As far as I know, I'm the only member of the House who worked in the White House working on the president's strategy to combat anti-Semitism, which called for spending more resources to uh, address the problem. So it is that perspective I brought to that vote. It's why I also joined a task force to combat anti-Semitism. It's why in my first floor speech, I talked about the efforts that w we need to undertake. So uh, for me, my analysis is based on the work that I've done before and other members are entitled to vote how they'd like, but I want to fund, not defund efforts to combat anti-Semitism. Well, the, then there was a second vote where you got criticism from the left. This was you voted in favor of a resolution from the Republicans condemning anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. Progressive Jews in your district have pushed back saying they, some of them are not, are to consider themselves anti-Zionist. Magaziner voted present on this one. Did you feel you had to vote in favor of the second resolution because of the blowback you got in the first resolution? No. Not at all. Why I voted that way is, again, I, I'm very clear, we need to combat anti-Semitism and to raise the sentiment of, of combating that because we know that some elements of anti-Semitism are inspired by folks who don't believe in Israel's right to self-determination. There are lots of definitions around uh, anti-Zionism. So semantic that it, we would spend the whole hour talking about this. Uh, what people should know ultimately is that my commitment to combating anti-Semitism it, it might sometimes have votes on things that are imperfect pieces of legislation. Uh, we spoke about the imperfection of the NDAA. Some of these resolutions are imperfect. So you've got to read each one of them and, and look at the elements that are most critical to you and the people in your district. Because I've also heard by email, by calls to my office from many people who have said, thank you for your support. Thank you for being in this place. So I'm balancing a lot of, of interest, but people should know I'm always willing to explain why I vote. Well, newsmakers might feel like an hour, but it's only a half hour, <laughs> just so you know. Um, look, Republicans voted this week to launch an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. I know you don't like it, but is this the price Democrats are paying for launching two impeachment inquiries against President Trump? Well, I think it's very clear that President, former President Trump, and hopefully not President again Trump, will uh, be facing charges and, and, and uh, cases in multiple courts in multiple jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah, but were Democrats but, too hasty with, with the impeachment inquiries? Well, I think his current legal predicament suggests that they weren't too hasty, that he has participated in un unlawful behavior. None of them have will... to do with the Russian, uh, you know, debacle and all that. that, that you're talking about the second impeachment yeah. inquiry. Well, what, what, I, what I'm saying is, unlike the 
pattern of behavior that we've seen from President Trump. There is no such behavior uh, uh, that is equivalent from President Biden. President Biden has been a very uh, effective president uh, over the past two plus years. And these these, you know, votes and this vote we had on an inquiry is is really a reflection of Republicans committing to the extremes of their party and not to actually getting anything done. Right. We broke for uh, the holiday, not having addressed anything to lower costs, not addressing our gun violence epidemic, not dealing with things that the American people want us to deal with. Instead, we're, we're voting for an inquiry where you know, it's basically a fishing just, expedition. Just so the to, viewers understand, yeah, yeah the, the leadership has sent all of you home till January 8th, I believe? Yes. 9th. 9th? Okay. Yes. So, um, is it going to gum up every, the impeachment inquiry? Is it just going to suck all the oxygen out of the room? Well, it has a huge potential to, because when you look at the month of January, remember when we came oh, yes. to the, the <laughs> deal uh, and the vote that Democrats led to keep government open, they, we extended to January 19th. 19th. Yeah. Now these committees uh, that are involved in the impeachment inquiry uh, I've read this morning are, are likely to vote in some way by the middle of February. These timelines are pretty problematic and, and suggest to me a misprioritization by the extremes of the Republican Party and a focus on, on really distracting from the fact that they don't want to get things done. Let's come back to the first district. Uh, got overshadowed by the bridge fiasco, but two of the biggest employers in your district announced mm -hmm. significant job cuts this week. CVS and Hasbro. My understanding is hundreds of Rhode Islanders among those losing their jobs. Have you spoken to either Karen Lynch or Chris Cox about the job cuts? And no. we have about a minute left, Congressman. So I, I have not uh, spoken with, I have spoken with people at both of the companies. And what I would say is that's why I'm committed to fighting for Rhode Island jobs. I'm Glad to be on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, where I'm going to fight for federal dollars to expand on things like our new NOAA facility uh, that's slated to be built in Newport, and also get uh, as much of that federal federal uh, resource here uh, to expand jobs on bills like chips and science and so much more to invest right here in Rhode Island. So we got to build for the supply chains of the future. But and I'll be right just there briefly, for you were, were you concerned to hear that? I, of course, any job loss is, is concerning, especially two of our hallmark companies. But I want to make sure that there are opportunities for those people to thrive uh, in other roles here in our state. And 20 seconds left here. How, how did you learn? Was it just a breaking news alert across your phone? I mean, what? Yes. Uh, like other Rhode Islanders saw it on my phone and, and uh, it, it makes me uh, recommit to fighting for Rhode Island jobs in any way that I can. All right, Congressman Gabe Amo, we appreciate he uh, you coming on the program. I hope you have a great holiday break. Back to work on January 9th. If you missed any of it, it's on WPRI.com. <laughs> That's right. Well, there, there you that. go again. Christmas gift. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll see you next week on Newsmakers.